So when we uh, last broke off, we were talking about um, that first amazing Switch album, and uh, we talked about the hit song. I wanted to just touch on a couple of other uh, tracks from that album and um, you know, get any memories or, or perspective you had on those, um, because there were so many great tunes on there. Um, Thank you. We Like to Party, Come On. That was a real good up-tempo one. And uh, what do you remember about that one? And was that one of the... Uh, that was really one of your best early dance uh, tracks, right? Actually, yes, it was. That was a song that I wrote uh, shortly after I put the group together, quite frankly, before we on the Motown. And it's something that we would party to and rehearse to and jam to. And uh, it had a different name. It was a crazy name. But once we got it into the studio, Barry Gordy actually fell in love with it. And he says, you need to rewrite this. He says, I like what you're saying, but come up with a catchier title. And I said, well, heck, it ain't nothing but a party. So, and that thus came, we like the party. Bobby DeBarge dove in and tweaked a few little melody things with me. And that's how the song came about. And fortunately, that song uh, did very well. I think it was in the top 40 on the disco charts even though it was not released as a single. Hmm. But it did overseas and other places, it just took off and it played as a single. So uh, uh, of those, that was, of course, one of my favorites anyway, off that first album, because it took us in a different direction other than they'll never be in, I want to be closer and things like that. So, I agree. I think it really uh, you know, gave a, uh, a look at the um, versatility of the group early on. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. I agree with you. I think so too. And then uh, "Fever" to me was sort of like a Temptations kind of throwback track. Yeah, and that was Greg Wright. Greg Wright at the time was a Motown producer, but he was also Dinah Ross's musical director. And they had us meet with various producers to kind of put the first album, get the first project off the ground. And that was one of the things out of probably about four or five that Greg came up with that we fell in love with. So. Because it and and along with you pull the we pull the switch, you pull the switch. He, he, that was Greg's work as well. So both those things work. Yeah, you pull the switch. That one real had kind of a jazzy flavor. Yeah, it did it? Sure did. Yeah. And he was just trying to play on the name, which was kind of clever because it worked. So. And we actually did talk about that, Greg. How did you come up with the name? Tell you the truth. I wanted guys initially in putting the group together, and I think I explained that to some degree, that I wanted guys that could play more than one instrument. I wanted guys that could all sing. I wanted a variation of, of lead vocalists. And in the course of us rehearsing and putting our show together, one guy may start on one instrument and wind up on another. One guy may start be the lead on a song and wind up doing background while someone else came up to do the lead. Well, this was part of our initial, we had to do a showcase for Motown after, even though we had the deal, uh, they wanted us to do a showcase so they could bring in the producers and executives and to see who this new Motown find was, okay? In the course of this big showcase we did, Barry Gordy, Suzanne DePass, Hal Davis, Smokey Robinson, uh, uh, a lot of the, the Motown producers and executives came to this thing, there were probably about 30, 40 people they brought to, to this showcase for this new group, who we had decided to call first class, but found out a couple weeks before then that there was a group in New Jersey that had the name first class, so we had to come up with a new name. Okay, we go ahead, we move forward, we're doing this showcase, we don't have a name. While we're performing, we did, uh, if I'm correct, probably about eight songs, and one minute, Bobby DeBarge is singing the lead, and Philip and me are in the background. Uh, I'm on my trumpet, and uh, uh, Jody's on the drums, and Tommy's on bass. And the next song, Philip or I am singing lead. Bobby's on the drums, Jody's on the keyboards, Tommy's on the keyboard, and uh, uh, you know, and Eddie. Well, we kept switching the thing up. Out of the excitement, as people were complimenting us about our performance at the end of it, Suzanne DePass makes a statement. You guys are fabulous, and so and so and so, and I've never seen so much switching in my life. And the light bulb went off in my head. That's the name, and I took it back to the fellows, and we all agreed switch worked for us because that's what we did, switch. And that's how it came about. That's well. The great thing about it is there's so many different kind of meanings you could put to it. You know, like turning Absolutely. on. I mean, there's so many ways to look at it. 
Absolutely. Plus, there's so many different kinds of switches. A light switch, a train switch. You know, but the and so the name already was memorable. It was already memorable because it's in common everyday language. But then to apply it as we applied it, it worked. It worked magic for us, really. Well, you know, if you look at baseball, one of the most valuable commodities sometimes are switch hitters because they can do it all. So <clears throat> That's right. <clears throat> Absolutely. Um, one other track I wanted to mention on that first record, Greg, was uh, Somebody's Watching You because it made me think of just a couple years later, I think it was, uh, Rockwell came out, you know, on Motown. I was wondering if there's any relationship. I don't think so. And even though we knew Rockwell, uh, 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 he was a kid when we came around. So the times when we would go up to the Gordia State, we would hang, Rockwell would hang with us and stuff like that. But I don't really think that was an influence on it. And I think I remember telling you that that song, Somebody's <laughs> Watching, was the only song that came off of our original demo that wound up being utilized for the album. So and there was a little something that Jody came up with. But anyway, I don't think that there was any kind of correlation between the two. I think it was just what happens. Yeah. Was something something in the uh in the uh <clears throat> air at that time. Okay. <clears throat> Excuse me. Sonically, Greg, I don't know if there's any influence or not, but I thought I heard a little flavoring of maybe cameo or confunction in there some somewhere somehow. To be honest with you, I don't think so. We did it and, and the reason I said that. Is because I think our influence were in inward for the most part. Of course, Earth, Wind, and Fire, they were the biggest act of our genre. And if we were to emulate anyone, I think it would have been more of that. Plus, another thing, we never thought we were anywhere near as funky as a cameo or a bar case. We were not a funk band per se. We were Midwest boys raised on on uh, AM radio, not R&B radio, AM Top 40 radio. That Bobby the barge and myself i say we and that's most of us but bobby and i were the musical influences for the group for the most part and we were raised on that wgrd grand rapids michigan you know and and uh so the real funky influences we weren't so never did we try to emulate that in any kind of level you know more so emulation of a barry white if if even that and that was because we worked with barry and barry was an influence but other than that i think our music came from within you know, and uh, and the overall arrangements and even flavor as a unit, because every individual got to put in who they were. And that original idea, and the original idea may have come from Bobby or me, but everybody got to put a piece of got to put a piece of themselves into what they played. Jody on drums, Tommy on bass, Eddie on trombone or keyboard, and Philip on percussion or keyboard or singing or you know, that's just what it was with us. Well, and Greg, that definitely came through because, you know, in general, uh, when you hear the Switch songs, they don't really, you know, immediately conjure up like other groups, you know. Back then, especially when you're talking about funk, so many of the ideas and sounds were sort of borrowed and shared, you know. Um, but uh, Switch's music definitely uh, was sort of its own thing, I think. Um, so, yeah. Second album. Man, talk about a um, you know coming back strong. You didn't have any sophomore slump, I don't think. Switch two, in 1979, um, great songs like "I Call Your Name," another smash, and "Best Beat in Town." How did you get that record together? And how were you, like, you must have taken lessons learned from that first one and come back even stronger. Well, quite frankly, yeah, we did. Not to mention, uh, we were in school, man. You know, from the time we signed the Motown, it was school to us. So, and we learned how to perfect and and embellish and expound on what we were doing all the way around, from the basic tracks to the vocals to the arrangements on top and all of that. And it was still all of us just pulling ideas that we had worked with. Well, that like the best beat in town that had been around since before the first album too. You know, but it was an idea. Bobby had a, a different title for that as well. And it was an idea, but uh, that just kind of lay dormant while we worked that first album. But while trying to come up with stuff for the second album, pulled that one back into the game, and uh, uh, just took it and ran with it, you know. And all the guys had an influence on that. Everybody had an influence on that. Even though Bobby D. Barge and Jody Sims, I think, are the, the listed writers, but everybody could do that because we were all allowed to just do our own little thing. So. 
And what about I Call Your Name? That's like a great epic, that song. Thank you very much. Now, that's something that I think I mentioned in our first uh, dialogue. Bobby and I lived in an apartment together in North Hollywood. Had the piano in the living room, and every chance we got, we were sitting at that piano just having fun and creating. Well, I Call Your Name came out of one of those events. And uh, he had an idea. He was playing it. I came over. I started singing. We started bouncing things off of each other, and that's ultimately what we came up with. And I am so thankful that that song rose to be a classic. That song will definitely outlive me and Bobby. It's already outlived him and will outlive me. And it's something that I'm proud of as a writer. It's something that I'm proud of as an artist, as a producer. You know, I'm proud, proud to be a part of that. Because in comparison to today's music, not beating it up, but there's very little that has the substance and quality of an I Call Your Name, musically, vocally, lyrically, you know, uh, arrangement-wise. There's very few things that will surpass that song. That song's special. And I'm glad to be a part of it. Absolutely. Now, was there a particular muse for that song? Was there anyone? Oh, and you want to hear that? And, and I, I guess you've heard the story like everyone else that Latoya Jackson was. No, Bobby and I wrote that song. So, with that in mind, uh, she had no role in it. There was the only thing is no. There was a whole other song that Bobby mentioned one of her singles, uh, "You and I," which was on the came out on the third album. We wrote that in 1977 as well. When I call your name and they'll never be and all that, those things songs came out of that apartment out of that point in time. But uh, uh, you and I came out on the fourth album, and Bobby mentioned something about Latoya on it. Well, people got that misconstrued and wanted to give her credit for I Call Your Name. Had nothing to do with her. It was just, we were vibing. That's all. He was on the piano, he was vibing. I come up, I vibe with him, and there it came out. You know, Greg, when you were mentioning about the top 40 influence and that kind of thing, uh, one note I made, <clears throat> you know, Best Beat in Town, that song is so unique, going back to that for a second. Um, I felt like there was almost possibly even a little country influence, if that sounds crazy, in, in, in that. Um, but, um, and then uh, go on doing what you feel, sort of like Earth, Wind and Fire uh, horns. You mentioned Earth, Wind and Fire. So those are some of the things I was picking up when I listened to that. Things about both of those. First of all, let's go back to Best Beat in Town. Bob DeBarge Sr. loved country music. Yeah. His, okay. Uh, Erlene DeBarge loved gospel music. Those 10 kids were overly influenced by both of those. So Bobby was mimicking his dad when he came up with the, the with that, uh, 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 with the country. The, well, McGlory's a guitar player. He's still with us, thank God. And uh, he's, he, he just, out of nowhere, he came up with the guitar. But, which is, I think is like a country guitar. But Bobby directed that, and he directed everybody. So there was a country influence that he had gotten from his father on that particular song. Now, to jump from that to go on doing what you feel, Jermaine was stricken by Earth, Wind, and Fire. Mm -hmm. And Jermaine arranged and produced Go On Doing What You Feel. He even hired the same horn players, horn section, Tom Tom 84, to play the horn, arrange and play the horns on that song. Tom Tom 84 was, of course, Earth, Wind, and Fire's horn section at the time. Mm -hmm. So he was heavily influenced by Earth, Wind, and Fire. That was Jermaine's work. Makes sense. Um, great harmonies on the record, of course. Um, yeah, Go and Do What You Feel was pretty hot. I was surprised that wasn't a bigger hit. Yeah, back to Switch's history. The five albums that we did on Motown, I had my vision to pull together these guys. Barry Gordy had his vision of how to sell records with these guys. As he did with Smokey and the Miracles, as he did with Michael and the Jackson Five, as he did with Diana and the Supremes, and the and the beat goes on uh, with everybody that he would pick his one individual favorite out of the group and work the hell out of them. That's what he did with Switch, and not that Bobby DeBarge's talent did not warrant it, because it in fact it did. He was the most incredible falsetto singer. Not to mention how creative he was, you know, as, as a writer and arranger and producer. But very honed in on Bobby, more so than anything and anybody else. 
that brought music to the table. And that's why certain songs did not surface as singles because of his vision. He wanted to keep it to it. He created a formula and he wanted to stick to it with Bobby. And that's what occurred. So that's why certain things, there were some great songs. For example, I got a little story for you. Uh, on album three, there was a song called Fallen. The song itself, the song itself happened to wind up being on the B side of a release. Uh, if I'm correct, it was Friend in the Sky was the single, and uh, Fallen was on the B-side. Got to American Bandstand. Uh, they were supposed to play the record, the single, uh, Friend in the Sky. Whomever the powers that be, they flipped the song over. They played the B-side, Fallen, and Fallen, strangely enough, at that point, wound up being the highest-rated record in the history of Bandstand. Wow. Yep. And I dare say Fallen was Rick James' favorite. I mean, anytime Rick and I were friends, he was friends with all of us, but we were friends. And anytime I would see him, he would be singing that song. He would sing literally sing my song. Anyway, bottom line is still, because of Barry Gordy's formula, so to speak, uh, Fallen was never uh, a single. It never became a single. So certain other good records wound up on out just on albums because of that practice. I dare say, but you know, I mean, with a 90% win record, I can't really argue with the man. Yeah. I just wish I had written that song at another time and on another project and maybe it would have became as powerful uh, up-tempo song as I Call Your Name became as a ballad. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, well, so I know you said that it was a while before you guys went out on tour. When you finally did go out on tour, were some of the tracks like that popular live? Actually, did we? I don't know if we did Fallen. I think when we went out, we may have had 40 minutes. We were, uh, we were um, believe it or not, we went out, we signed in 77. We did not go on tour until the end of 80. We went out on one tour. It was headlined initially by the Barcays and Cameo. So the lineup was Barcase Cameo with special guest Switch and various others up under that. That would be on, depending on the city, it would change. After four shows into that tour, Cameo actually quit. They left the tour. And uh, so Switch moved up into that second slot. And uh, we worked with a lot of different people too on those tours. I mean, from uh, Gap Band, Michael Henderson, Pointer Sisters, uh, Stacey Lattisaw, uh good Lord, man, there was so many. Slave, uh, Confunction, we did dates with Confunction. There were just so many acts, R&B acts of that era and that genre that uh, we worked with on that tour. And to uh, uh, answer your question, we wound up with maybe about 40 minutes, so we had to cut it down basically to the hits at the time. I call your name, they'll never be, I want to be closer. You know, love over and over again. And little things we, best beat in town, and little things we weave in and out. You know, we do a little snippet of this, a little snippet of that. So, yeah, I don't have it what the lineup was, but I still got it, yeah. Had to keep it to a tight, crisp 40-minute set. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. Hit them, hurt them, and get out of there. Yeah, yeah. Um. Well, let's talk about the third record, uh, Reaching for Tomorrow. That was the third one, right? Yeah, it was. You, you had two in 1980, so it gets a little confusing. But um, been, Yeah, Reaching for Tomorrow was short-lived. That was a transitional period for Switch where uh, there was some uh, inner dissension and things had gotten to a place where we weren't sure what we were going to do. We went to Caribou Ranch. We started and recorded that album. And by the time we got back from Caribou Ranch, there was some uncertainties as to whether... Uh, Bobby was going to be in the group, and uh, there were some things that were happening that weren't too favorable to Motown, so Motown went ahead. Uh, once they decided, let's put the record out, they went ahead and shot that crazy, uh, came up with that crazy, crazy artwork, you know, instead of pulling us together to shoot a photo. I did ask for it, but it was a little late in the game, and they moved ahead anyway, so... The record, and they didn't promote the record. They released it, but they didn't really promote it. So uh, to me, that's some of our best work. 
because it was written in a highly emotional period for us and we were in a totally new location. We left LA to get away from LA. We went to Caribou Ranch in Colorado to record this thing. We spent a, roughly a month or more there recording the project. And uh, it was great. It, it turned out to be great stuff, but they didn't promote it. They didn't promote the, you know, the newness of Switch because they were uncertain. Well, that, so that, that record came. I was going to say that record uh, had more music too, I think, more tracks. It was. It was a more musical record, period. It really was, man. Come on. But, you know, they didn't see it and they didn't do it. And that one came and died. And they sent us right back into the studio to do another one once the group became cohesive again at that point. You know, I didn't mention it uh, on the previous one, but it kind of carries over to that third one. Uh, and I think we mentioned this earlier in the interview, but I mean, what you had some great musicians that came in and helped you guys. I mean, I see listed. Uh, guys like um, uh, Joe Sample, who you mentioned, and uh, uh, Greg Fillingaines, Paul Jackson. I mean, you guys had some heavy hitters coming in there. We sure did. <laughs> and I will tell you this in all honesty, most of our, that was when we were moving out of the total self-containment in the studio. You know, and so we did use some other people. Bobby used other guys, and so did I at that point. You know, and Bobby and I, again, were the primary producers then. I mean, even Jody had kind of moved back out of production at that point. So, and Jermaine and Paul were tight. So Jermaine, you know, used Paul on a lot of stuff. Paul and I were talking about that ironically a couple of weeks ago. We ran at each other at a function, at a switch performance. And we were talking about how much work he did with us and how we had good times together. So, yeah, but we did. We we were the Motown kids, man. We had uh, the power to do what we wanted to do. So we could call on some of anybody and everybody. And if it was triple scale or more, we paid it. And it was not a big deal because we were creating great music for the label. Well, that third record may have gotten short shrift at the time. But before we move on and talk about the next one, I want to touch on a, on a few tracks. Um, you know, Don't Take My Love Away, really nice ballad. If you recall that one, um, of course. Yeah, and uh, I finally found someone new. is a really sweet ballad. Uh, Brighter uh, tomorrow is just an interlude, but the album had sort of an, an ethereal feel to it, you know. And I know you had the uh, a friend in the sky, so it had the spirituality to it. What was sort of going on uh, that that brought that spirituality uh, front and center on that one? Well, like I said to you, uh, and primarily. That was Bobby's doing again. And as I said earlier about the influences, the country influence from the dad, the gospel influence from the mom, and that's what he grew up with. And at that point in time, I think he was searching for who he was more so. So a lot of the creativity that he input was from that uh, stance or position. You know, he's trying to find out who the heck Bobby is and what to do with him and things like that. And finally found someone new. It's ironic you call that a sweet uh, sweet ballad and it was it was because Tommy DeBarge wrote that that was one of the few things he ever wrote But Tommy wrote that and then Tommy was a sweet guy that was his emotional thing and actually had his girlfriend He was in love with at the time so. <laughs> <laughs> Well keep on moving on was a pretty good dance track um, You know that's one that I thought maybe could have had some radio or club appeal it could have. Yeah. It could have. It's got swept away in the formula. <laughs> so. so Hot on the Heels of That, This Is My Dream, came out. And uh, what can you tell us about, about that record, Greg? Well, I can tell you that that was our last record between the, the uh, with the whole group. Because Bobby was to make his exit after that. That was our last record before we went on tour. And if you look at the album, actually, Bobby did half of it. I did half of it. And there was very little collaborative effort on behalf of the group. I will say this, love me over and over, love over and over, shot the group back up again. You know, I mean, not that we had fallen, but, you know, like I said, that third record, because it wasn't promoted, they, it did nothing for us. So there was a void, a switch void, you know, of new music on the radio because they were still playing the old ones. 
but this thing, Love Over and Over re revitalized our radio airtime. Mm -hmm. Okay? And uh, I think that the whole album had a bunch of good stuff on it. Mm -hmm. uh, again, Love Over and Over was the only thing that came out and had impact on it. Yeah, that track um, really sort of echoed I Call Your Name. You know, I thought, you know, there was sort of a common thread definitely running through those. Absolutely. Come on. <laughs> it, that was a formula there, too, to tell you the truth. Stick with what works is what Bobby was told by Barry. And there we have it. <laughs> and then uh, Without You in My Life was sort of a classic soul-style ballad, and you had Claire Fisher doing some of the arrangements. Yeah, ironically, too, Claire worked on uh, quite a few things with us. Uh, believe it or not, Claire, Bobby, Tommy, and I are Grand Rapids boys. So Claire is older than, you know, uh, maybe 10 or more years, it was, maybe 10 or more years older than us, so we didn't know each other in Grand Rapids, but once I found out he was from Grand Rapids, especially after hearing his incredible work, I was anxious to hire him, so we reached out, but yeah, and uh, that was the first song he got, I got him involved with, too, was Without You In My Life. And that was something I wrote, arranged, and produced with Philip Ingram in mind as a sole lead vocalist. Again, as I said, we were, Bobby and I were working in different places. So my point of focus was the, the, the six of us as much as I could get out of it and go from there. So, And that's how that song, that song came about. I was wanting to write something solely for Philip. So at this point, you and Bobby were kind of not seeing eye to eye. There was a rift. What was going on exactly? There was a lot going on at that time. Bobby became about Bobby, and I was still about the group. And with the group being the dominant issue in my life, I stood up for it, not only with Bobby, with, with Barry Gordy, with Jermaine and Hazel, and with every darn body else. This was my baby. This was something I founded. So therefore, if anything was going against the grain, I was going to defend it. And I defended it rigorously, not physically, but I did get my point across. And if Bobby and I were in disagreement about Switch, I had to win because I was caring for the other five people. And so that created a certain level of dissension. Bobby and I being brothers from the point of us being like, well, I was 15, he was 14 when we met, we were tight. And I wouldn't join a group without him. That's how he even got involved with White Heat. That's how he wound up getting involved with Switch later, you know, because I went after him. So I had to deal with him from a position of respect. And while everyone else was trying to, well, not everyone else, but a lot of people was kissing his butt, agreeing with him. It's phenomenal talent. There's no two ways about that. But... Again, Switch was six people. So in my defense of that, he and I were at odds more than not. Uh, and that had happened even prior to with that third album. You know, he and I were at odds, but we came back together. We did the fourth album, and then it fell apart again. It was really time for change. And so there I the place, which is he went his way and we went ours. And was the label, did you feel like they were more uh, siding with Bobby or with, with the rest of Switch or what happened there? Of course, they sided with uh, Barry Gordy and his formula again. So, of course, they sided with Bobby. But there was still value in Switch to them. It was just that they changed the rules of the game. And I didn't want the rules of the game to change because then I would wind up in a deficit position. So that's what ultimately caused us to leave. This record, though, I mean, you may have had a lot going on, but there sure was a lot of strong material in it still. I mean, not only the hit that you mentioned, but, um, you know, um, You and I was a nice track. Um, All I Need Is You is strong, funky soul music. Um, Why'd You Let Love uh, is that Fall? That's a nice one. Um, yeah, I mean, and I like um, on um, Believe in Yourself, you know, the second half of that gets real funky. Um, yeah. Yeah, so there's some real nice touches in there. Yeah, and you know something? Let me say this, Scott. Good songs, even great songs, come out of emotional moments. And in our era of dissension, there was a lot of emotion going on. Good, bad, and indifferent emotion going on. 
And so good, bad, and then different songs came out of that time. And that's why that album wound up being, I think that was a superior album as well. It had more to offer, even though it never got to the public, it had more to offer. You know, I Call Your Name was a better record. Uh, I Want to Be Closer was a better record. They'll Never Be was a better record than Love Over and Over. But in an overall album sense, there was more uh, substantive songs to offer. I think the best album that Switch did, though, to be honest with you, creatively, was number three, Reaching for Tomorrow. Because we were reaching out and becoming who we were to become. Mm-hmm. But, you know, uh, but ultimately that third album, I mean that fourth album, This Is My Dream, had a lot to offer as well. And Reggie Andrews was involved. What was his role? He uh, worked with uh, Patrice Russian, right? Yeah, Patrice Russian, Girl Albright and Dougal Chancellor. Yeah. Both arranged and produced Let It Whip for the Daz Band. Mm-hmm. And he was kind of the head of, he was the head of NR at that point of Motown, but also Horn and String Arrangement. So I got him involved in helping. He wasn't the head of NR, Lee Young Jr. was, and Reggie worked under Lee. He was an NR director. But I got him involved with the horns and strings on a few songs. Reggie worked directly with me at, during that period. So, and uh, yeah, awesome captain, man, really. You guys finally went out on tour, ironically, when things were starting to fall apart. Um, what was it like on the road? You mentioned about some of the groups you performed with, but with the friction that was going on in the group, I mean, what was the whole experience like for you? And it was fun. It was good to get back on the road. That's where I came from, on the road, musician, you know? And Switch was created not out of us working together and doing tours. Switch was created out of me knowing that everybody had it and could do it, but let's concentrate on getting the record. So with that, it took, and once we got with Motown, Motown's priority was getting the record, getting a product that they could sell. They didn't necessarily benefit from us on tour other than in promoting what they already had. So it was not their objective to get us on tour, and they didn't. So when we finally went out on tour, it was special. It was uh, we were all happy about it. You know, I thought it might have a chance to save my group, but I learned very quickly there's more craziness out on the road than it is at home. At least you got a little more control of your environment at home. You don't have one out there. Come what may, they're coming. Trust me, all of them. The good, the bad, the ugly, the indifferent. They are coming. It will be there. Not to mention fatigue, not to mention illness, not to mention bad promoters who won't have your money every time. So it was a crazy situation, but God, did we have fun. And it was us against the world. And, you know, it was special. It really was. I was thinking, young ladies must have been putty in your hands when you were doing those ballads. I'll be honest with you, they were with all the guys. As for me, I was the business guy. I really was. And uh, so I'm dealing with the promoters and I'm dealing with the venues and all of that. But they were there. I've had to tell the guys to clear the bus out quite a few times. <laughs> so they were there, trust me. I can uh, hear them screaming when you guys were doing those songs in my head. You know, I'm sure they were like going crazy. Oh, God, it was crazy. They used to tear down barriers, man. I remember two security guards that were posted up front of the stage wound up having to go to the hospital. That's the girl just trample them. And that happened in more than five cities, that same kind of thing. Not where the guys went to the hospital, but where they, the girls just tore barriers and rushed the stage, and we had to be pulled off by our security and stuff. It was crazy. It was pandemonium out there. Wow. So you did one more record for Motown, uh, Switch 5, and um, both Tommy and Bobby were gone, right? No, just Bobby was. Just Bobby was gone. Okay. Yeah, Tom is on the record. Tommy's there. And um, for me, this was uh, somehow it turned out to be Switch's funkiest record with Motown. What was what was going on at that point? And how did you feel with Bobby having left? In all honesty, man, I was glad the problem didn't exist anymore. I love Bobby very much. And we were brothers. We, were always, we would always be brothers. You know, and uh, working together was a difficult situation. So I was glad that the, the, the dissension, the, the bickering, 
the ego. I was glad all of that was the drugs. I was glad all of that was gone, to tell you the truth. So what it was, we were able to focus. We had a couple of new members that we, we brought in a guitar player and we brought in the lead vocalist. And uh, of course, the music changed. The music changed at that point. So that's why it was funky. It was different. You know, and the one song that Bobby was on, Reggie Andrews did do that song. And he did that song for Bobby's album. And uh, I angrily tell you that it was dumped on the Switch album because I didn't want it. You know, but it was dumped on the Switch album so the Switch could absorb the budget. Since they had realized that they were not going to be able to recoup from Bobby because they were not going to get a complete album out of Bobby. So that was a whole unique situation, that last album and the experience there. And I wish I could tell you that there was some joy in it. There were some fun times, but there was not a lot of joy in it because I realized that the dream that I had brought in at one time with these six men was coming to a close. So it was not for me. And I still had to stand up straight and tall and, you know, I had to encourage the other guys and I had to endure and I had to fight the battles and onward. Looking at that record, though, there certainly was a lot of um, good danceable music on it. Uh, you keep me high. Um, you mentioned Rick James earlier. To me, that felt a little like his influence, possibly. Um, this is just for you. Two wrongs don't make a right. Push the switch. Um, it had female vocals on it. That was kind of something different. Push the switch. Oh, incidentally, real quick, I'll tell you about that push the switch. That one was done uh, by the time we were doing the third album. It was done by Jermaine. And it was a collaboration between Switch and High Energy. That's why it had the female vocal on it. You do remember High Energy. You can't turn me off in the middle of turning me on. Yeah, we did a couple songs with them. In fact, Jermaine did that with them. And I did a song with them uh, for Switch called Stronger Than Before. But it didn't make the album. In the final analysis, it didn't fit where we were going. So what was what ended up being the closest thing to a hit on that record? And was there a track? <laughs> I was about to say hit the road because that's <laughs> what. We, <laughs> excuse me, but there was nothing, man. Call on me. Jumped on the charts at eighty three and was about to run and Motown pulled the plug on it. Oh, and after, yeah, and after we realized it was over, it was a done deal, you know. Go ahead. Call on me has a haunting quality to it, though. I mean, it's kind of, it's got something. It's a great song, man, to tell you the truth. And it could have gave us, taken us in a whole nother direction. Had they promoted it, it would have reinvented Switch because it was about to. Because it was one of the most requested songs on radio in the areas that it was played. So. The two wrongs don't make a right. Uh, gave me a little bit of that. Let's get serious kind of vibe. You know, I felt the Jermaine tie-in a little bit with that one. And that was Zane and and Philip, our new guitarist and Philip. So that may have could have very well been a Jermaine influence. So Greg, you uh, ended up parting ways with Motown at that at that point. What kind of parting was that? How did it go down? Well, actually, like I said, they wanted to change the rules of the game. They told us we had one more album uh, to do after this uh, per our contract. And uh, they wanted us to move forward with it, but they wanted to pull certain finances and, you know, limit the scope of certain things, who was to do what and things like that. And I figured we could do better elsewhere. And me and the guys talked about it, and we agreed that after how – they put all the energy into Bobby and they didn't put energy into call on me that they weren't going to put much energy into us after that. Let's go. And we left. And that's what that was. So it was not a sweet party, but it was not a, okay, I'm dropping you guys, you know, or anything like that. It was, we decided to get the heck out of it. And we did. The honeymoon was over. Oh, <laughs> it was, it was, it was a, an album ago. It was over, but you know, the marriage was over at that point. Yeah. <laughs> so I noticed there was a few years between when that came out, I think 81, the last Motown, and then 
84 was the one total experience. How, how did the total experience uh, deal come to be and what happened in the interim, Greg? Uh, actually, we were just, no, uh, total experience, we signed, we left Motown, if I'm correct, in 83. It was all said and done in 83 and we started recording in the latter part of 83 with total experience. It just took them that long to put it out because they too were in transition. When we signed with them, I forgot. I'm thinking that they were with Capital, but I don't know. I don't remember right offhand the specifics, but they were with another label and they changed labels and went to Polygram and that's finally where the record came out of in Polygram. So during that period, we were still doing what we were doing, debating back and forth, you know, who was going to be in the group or we had to find new members. Because at that point too, Tommy was gone after the Motown album and Philip left after the Motown album. So that left me, Jody, and Eddie. And scrambling to, to keep a career going, you know, we found members and uh, uh, moved over to Total Experience. Took time recording the album and it came out, uh, what, a year and a half later, maybe. And how did you feel about that record? You know, um, both in terms of artistically, um, how much they supported it and how it ended up artistically a good record for the most part they uh brought in a producer oliver scott gussie was his name gussie was the guy behind yearning and those gap band hits a lot of them anyway great guy too one of the most talented guys in the world i loved working with him i think from my opinion he was the highlight of my experience at those experiences him and Forrest Hamilton, I take that back. Forrest Hamilton was the vice president of the company. He and I actually became good friends, even further beyond those those years of Total Experience. That was a rough situation at Total Experience because I didn't feel the love and support. But then I also realized that I didn't take in the switch that I loved and supported either. So, you know, uh, I, uh, the situation, it didn't work out. It, you know, I don't think that record... If it was really, if, and I should know, if it was released here in the United States and did nothing. Fortunately, we did have a pop hit uh, over uh, in the UK. They know that Keeping Secrets off that album. And there's good material on that record, too. Keeping Secrets was good. I think uh, It's All Up to You. I like, uh, I can't even think of the names of the titles. Yeah, it's all up to you. I like nice, nicely guitar work in that one. Let me tell you something I hate for the record, and then, I, then I'll try to do a whole lot better. I hate switching, baby. I hated it from the beginning. I hate it now. I think it's cheap. I think it's cheesy takeoff of yes, Let It Whip. Yeah, yeah. And, yes, and I won't allow nobody to play it in my house to this day. <laughs> well, I feel relieved to hear you say that, Greg, because, you know, when I do these shows, I never know how much I can come on, you know, say stuff like that. I don't want to offend my guest, but yeah, that track definitely uh, kind of was on uh, Daz Band's uh, tip. Absolutely, man. And not only that, it's a trite song. The lyric, the concept, you know, I could beat it, beat it to death. And I did then. And that's another reason why I was really unhappy with Total Experience, because they released that garbage as a single. And it was a music video. Sorry to... <laughs> <laughs> really me of that. I remember that. Oh god. <laughs> that was just that sealed my doom. Did you feel like uh they were trying to sort of also direct you in sort of a gap band kind of direction because that was like their marquee player? That was their success. That's you know, Barry had his formula, Lonnie Lonnie had his. And the thing of it was, since I didn't come, since I came with all new versus what already existed, my voice was very weak in trying to emulate what had already gotten us where we had gone. So they did what they did. They tried what they tried. I don't know if you know, I produced on that Switch 5 album that you talked about with Call On Me. I produced that album uh, other than one or two, it's two songs maybe. Reggie produced I Love It. And Jermaine produced uh, the thing with High Energy Push and Switch. And uh, I'll always keep, I think. But I produced the majority of the other stuff, or all the rest of the stuff. 
on by the time I got total experience, man, I was so worn by life itself and all the madness and all that. I only did one song on it. I didn't feel the love there. I didn't feel love for being there. I took that deal because it was the better of two opportunities that I had that would have financially kept me afloat and actually kept me publicly out there. So I thought. So, but the thing is, with total experience, I, my heart wasn't there. And I'm glad that they did have Gussie. If, if we were going to do an album, I'm glad he was there because he was great guy, great talent, had an ear for music like very few. So, and their version of Switch eh, could have worked overseas. I don't think it could have worked here because I don't think you could shove that Switch down the throats of the Switch lovers that knew the substance and the quality that we were noted for. Mm-hmm. And that's why adamant about uh that let it whip that sealed it for me that said okay you're done here you know on that record uh, greg spend my life with you was one of the tracks i thought was more most switch like yeah it was and that was jody sims effort to pull it back and that's what he did he went after love over and over again and and i call your name with that song yeah, yeah. he was trying to capture it and and we're on foreign soil so he's trying to put our flag somewhere <laughs> well it was the second to last track on the whole record so it's like oh hey by the way we're still the switch <laughs> i'm surprised it made it so that yeah was we, a- we've come full circle in this uh story greg because uh, at the beginning you know you were this young super confident guy in your in your musical abilities and the whole vision and then by the end of this, and you leave Total Experience, you're disillusioned, and you've gone through the whole rigmarole of the of the music industry and, and all that. So tell us what happened from that point to where you are today in a nutshell. Uh, I made an exit. I left. Something that I omitted from the conversation intentionally, but I'll put it in there right now. Another reason why... I was in such dismay with the total experience situation and the end of the Motown situation is because I was using drugs and I'm not a drug guy. I've never been that kind of guy. I got caught in the storm only for a few years, thank God. And I realized that it was not me. And so that's why I was, you know, I was disenchanted with the total experience situation, but I was disenchanted with Bobby. I was disenchanted with Greg. There was a lot of stuff that was going on at the time. And I knew I needed to change period. And I packed up and I moved to New Jersey. And I was not going to let the friends and the foes of my past be my new life as I went and cleaned it up and prepared it to go someplace else. Mm-hmm. And total experience fell into that faux part of it. So with that in mind, I moved on. I went to New Jersey. I wound up producing at Sugar Hill Records for a couple of years. I actually wound up being a keyboard player for GQ for about a year and a half. The group GPU I'm sure you're familiar with. And uh, I started a production company, a management company, and I worked myself back to a healthier place, mentally, physically, financially, and otherwise. And I lived in New Jersey for nine years, and I wound up, uh, I managed some great acts over there, man. I mean, I managed uh, Skinny Boys and Steezo for Sleeping Bags. They all had one, they had one hit. I managed Michelle Thomas, who was on... uh, she started out uh, doing commercials, and she wound up being Justine on the Cosby Show. Cosby Show. She wound up being Laura on Family Matters, uh, uh, and doing a lot of other stuff. Not only was she my uh, my artist, but she was my niece. Her dad, cool in the gang, Dennis Thomas. Okay, and we're not blood brothers, but brothers for years and years and years. So uh, I was Uncle Gregory to her and manager to her, and. It evolved from there. I spent nine years there, and then I decided, okay, let's go back to Cali and see if you want to put Switch together. I tried it, 1994, and it fell apart. It wasn't the same then, so I just kind of let it go. Who, who, did, you, who did you get involved at that point? Oh, I, originals. I went back for Jody, but he didn't want to come. I did get Philip and Eddie involved. Uh, to put in Bobby's shoes, there was a guy by the name of Al Cooper, who worked for the moment but didn't work for the overall and just some other musicians just some other guys you know to fill in i tried to get tommy but tommy actually tommy was in michigan dealing with some legal stuff so uh anyway uh 
we did a couple of dates and uh i had actually uh, talked to bobby about coming back and doing some stuff with us but bobby's life was aids written at that point it was pretty bad and he couldn't do it and ultimately he died i think we did a show in july and he died in august something like that so but anyway having said all that you know i wound up uh Letting that go and wound up producing for various labels, doing different things. Believe it or not, I'd always had a love for journalism. My dear friend, Cynthia Horner, who was the editor of Write On Magazine, who actually co-managed Acts with me when I was in New Jersey, uh, she put, they put out a new publication. The National Enquirer bought Write On Magazine, and they put out a new publication called Sisters in Style. I became the West Coast editor for that magazine while doing sessions, while doing different musical things here. It lasted for a good, what, six, seven years where I did a lot of things, art direction, editing, had a column, a whole bunch of stuff, you know. But anyway, and I still do sessions around. And I had my hand in management overseeing projects. In 1996, I wound up managing Elder Barge. I managed Elder Barge from 1996 until 2003. And from that point on, and I, at that point too, before I finished managing El. I put Switch back together again. I heard this kid who was phenomenal. Believe it or not, this kid sounded, I just say 95% like Bobby on his recordings. So I put him in. I don't know if you've heard any of this stuff with Akili on it. His name's Akili Nixon out of uh, Oakland, California. But he cuts it. He's not Bobby. He's Akili. But he sounds good. And we sound like the record when we perform live. So again, since 2003, me and the guys have been working. You know, not any major tours. We only do a few dates a year and keep going. Now, all of a sudden, things are picking up because we also have new music. We've got new music that may come out next week. I'm trying to get the final mix in my hand, and then I'll decide what's what. But you can bet within the next two to three weeks, there will be a new single out on Switch after all these years, after 30 years. And I, can, I dare say that the song is a great song, and not just because I co-wrote it and it's my group. But it's a great song because it's Switch. But it's Switch uh, 2018, 2019, 2020. You know, it's new music. It's great. And our mixers and our people are current. So technically, it's it's today. That's phenomenal. Well, definitely look forward to hearing that. And hope hope there'll be an album to follow. Are you kind of uh, waiting to see how that does before planning an album? Or how are you approaching Wait, songs in? No, we're already two songs into it. We also have three songs because we did a remake of They'll Never Be. We're just going to polish it. There's a video on YouTube on that of They'll Never Be, the remake. So we're going to polish that up. So we're three songs into an EP. I wanted to go for six, and we'll see what we come up with. Well, that is great to hear, Greg. Um, and, you know, so great to hear that you made it through that rough patch and, and came back like you did. And I know you were busy. Uh, because even if I wasn't hearing it, you know, I checked out your list of uh, credits and they're so impressive. So you've been having your finger in a lot of pies. <laughs> Thank you very much. Yeah, I've been, I've done some things. Life's been good. And let me give you the icing on the cake. With everything else that I've done, finally, I wrote my book. The name of my book is Switch, DeBarge, Motown, and Me. I just looked at the cover yesterday. I just heard from the editor on last Monday when she told me to give her a few more days, so I'm giving her a few more days. I'm hoping to have this book out uh, by the holidays. I'm talking about, you know, after September, October, November, but at least something somebody can buy or get a hold of for Christmas. But again, the name of the book is Switch to Barge, Motown, and Me. And that's pre-sales already going on on Switch's website, which is www.switchentertainmentworld.com. So there's a lot of things we got a store up there we got our history up there there's videos there's music there's even new things that are up there or are going up there so uh if your your viewers want to check it out please do that's fantastic wow looking forward to that big time thank you for sharing that greg um final question before we part ways i wanted to ask you um you know looking back what would you say that you are most proud about in the Switch experience and the legacy of Switch. I'm glad you said you defined that to the Switch because the first thing that comes out of my mouth normally is the, I'm the proudest of my 19-year-old daughter. 
I've got one kid, a 19-year-old daughter at my age, and it's something special. But anyway, proudest out of my years in Switch experience? Oh, there's a few things, Scott, and I'm glad you asked me that. I'm really proud that I, to this day, I have such a strong relationship with my brothers who took their journey with me. And I'm referring to Philip Ingram, Eddie Fluellen, and even Jody. I mean, even though Jody does not want to be a part of the unit or, you know, decided not to be, we're still brothers. And if we can communicate, and we went on a journey, man, a magical trip together, God, and I handpicked these two guys to go with me. And they did not let my insight about who they were down. They didn't let it down. So that's one thing I'm proud of. I am proud when I see some kids at various ages, 12, 15, 20s, and they tell me their mama got my records and used to play my records and stuff like that. I know your stuff because my mom played your stuff. So I'm proud of the longevity that our music has. I think I'm most proud, man, of the fact that I did what I set out to do. I have a long and lasted. It lasted. I was able to rejuvenate it, so now I can still go out and fill the accolades. We've been getting awards. We're doing new music. We're performing. You know, so I'm proud of the journey, man. I'm proud of the, the gift that it bore, that it, it left me with. And I'm proud that when I'm dead and gone, I shall still live. And that is the main part of this year. We're grateful for that, too, very much so. Um, thank you for all those great uh, records and those years of fantastic music and for continuing to do it and for coming on this show and sharing those stories. Hey, man, it's my honor. It really is. I appreciate you asking. And I've enjoyed. <laughs> now, uh, I think you got it out there, but is there any other place folks should uh, look to keep keep track of uh, everything Switch and, and Gregory Williams? Yeah. We're over the place. We're all over the place. First of all, uh, we've got a Switch Entertainment World page on Facebook. Of course, Gregory Williams have a page has a page on Facebook. Uh, there's Reverb Nation, uh, Switch uh, Switch Entertainment, on and but more so the websites I mentioned www.switchentertainmentworld.com because I'm going to continue to add on and build to that, and it, you can find us in all those places and others so outstanding thank you so much greg we're going to look for that song we're going to look for the book we're going to look for the performances uh much continued success and thank you again so much thank you sir and you know something scott another time maybe we can get back together maybe after the record's out and the book is out and uh i'd love to come back on and bring a couple of the fellows with me they don't live too far so they can come over here or i can go to them and we can do it again so i'd love to come back and do it at some point soon That'd be fantastic. We talk about the music and the book. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you get to meet a couple other fellows. Let them tell you their version too. So. Great. Work it out. Hey, okay. Hopefully you hung in there with some of the technical challenges. It was worth the journey. At least I think it was. We did the best we could with what we had. I have a whole new appreciation for Switch's Saga as that group truly enjoyed an amazing discovery and ride. Greg was a delight, and it was something to hear how confident he was in his musical abilities at such an early stage of his career. There will perhaps never be another group quite like Switch. A big thanks again to Mr. Gregory Williams for sharing those stories with Truth and Rhythm, and also, as always, a sincere thank you to you, the viewers, for continuing your interest and support in this show. Be sure to look up for uh, or look out for upcoming episodes of Truth and Rhythm, and catch up with previous installments at FunkyStuff.net, on YouTube, through iTunes, and other leading providers. Subscribe to Truth and Rhythm. Do so through the Funkin' Stuff channel on YouTube. We need that support. Show these great artists that you love the funk, R&B, and jazz that they produced for you and made your life so wonderful with their melodic sounds and groovy beats and rhythms. And, and I don't know about you, but they've made my life so much more full and worth living so subscribe to truth and rhythm we appreciate the support and i want to hear from you drop me an email scott g at funkinstuff.net you should see it on the screen right about now and let me know who else you want to see on the show what you like maybe what you aren't that crazy about i can take it um been getting a lot of emails from folks out there and really appreciate it 
a lot of requests for people to be on the show, and I am working on them. You can best believe it. So with that, until next time, as always, this is Scott, Dr. Jake's girlfriend, saying what? Of course, keep on vibrating to the rhythm of the one.